Welcome to The Observer Effect, a podcast of travel stories. This year, my father and brother and I made a pilgrimage to the home of John Steinbeck in Salinas, California. Unfortunately, it was closed. The house has been converted into a beautiful cafe with lunchtime hours, so all we could do in the early morning was longingly peek in through the door at the fireplace and all the photographs on the walls, the stairwell and ornate wallpaper, Then the door opened, and a man beckoned us upstairs with a big smile. Over the time of the house, since the ladies took it over and they started showing it, uh, they've had 96 different countries come through here, and all the United States. And you said people from Japan Japan, have come Japan, they just love it. He's touched a lot of people, a lot of lives. Yeah, I get get tears out of quite a few of them. Like you're standing in this room right now, which is mom and dad's. He was born in this room in 1902. I had a little girl from Germany, she cried so much, uh, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> I said, why not open the door? <laughs> and I told her that was uh, John in the bedroom. Oh my God. I swear to God, we had a river between the two of us coming down that stairway. I don't know what guy, it took like a 10 minutes to come. <laughs> yeah, man, she was really into it. Wow. <laughs> it was beautiful. It really was. <laughs> See, I'm crying already. Yeah. Anyway, he came back to take care of mom and dad when she had a stroke for eight, nine months, whatever it was. Yeah. Dad couldn't take care of her, so he came back, and while he was here, he wrote two books, um, The Red Pony and Tortilla Flats. Wow. Yeah, the one that got, got him. Yeah, yeah. You're going to get goosebumps here in a minute when I'm finished with you. I'll teach you to get Italian. Anyway, when he finished the manuscript to the Red Pony, it's when his mom passed on and he had to move his dad to his sister's house in Watsonville, Esther. And in commotion, he lost the manuscript. He wasn't going to rewrite it. Sure. His wife made him rewrite it. (laughs) They did find the other manuscript, the original. We don't know which one was published. Okay. But they did compare them. Now I got goosebumps, okay? See that magic seven? Words different. Seven. I was up here one day <laughs> with people and I was in the docent was outside and I said, Yeah, nine words different. And he comes in and says, David, you've been lying all this time. Said, Please, I've told everybody that. What what was it? Nine pages or what? Seven words. <laughs> I threw him down the stairs. <laughs> seven words different. Yeah. This is episode 119, Seven Words, Maine, where Rosinante glowed. After David kindly showed us the rest of the house, we walked down the street to the National Steinbeck Center, where I sat down with Lisa Josephs, head archivist, to learn more about how travel shaped the great writer's career. So, um, the first question, can you describe where we are right now? Okay. We are currently in the reading room of the archives at the National Steinbeck Center. I call it my reading room. It's a multi-purpose workroom for researchers to come sit and work with items from the, the archives. I stick uh, volunteers here to work. It also has uh, files for uh, um, uh, 
reference and clippings and things like that. So it's my multi-purpose room. <laughs> And can you describe the National Steinbeck Center at large? Yeah, so the National Steinbeck Center is a building that's seated at 1 Main Street, so at the end of Main Street in Salinas, California. Um, Brick and glass mostly. It's beautiful, Um, by the way. Yeah, (laughs) brick and glass mostly. uh, Currently owned by California State um, Monterey Bay, CSUMB. However, uh, the National Stambic Center leases our portion um, of the exhibit hall, the bookstore, and things that for um, for our purposes and for our um, Steinbeck mission. So, (laughs) and uh, it seems pretty active. Uh, Last time I visited, there were people researching, and I'm sure you get lots of pilgrims coming here? Like oh, yeah, me? yeah. I mean, well, there, well there's kind of, there's there's multiple groups that come through here. So um, here in the archive, I get a lot of the really serious people. They are fewer and farther between than just the, than the than the uh, museum goer and the general fan, um, but still, just for whatever reason, this year I've had a lot of people come in. <laughs> you know, three or four in one week, and I'm just like, oh, wh- why did you all come in January? What was so special about January 2019 that was the time to come? Um, but yeah, so I tend to get other people who are a bit more serious or doing, uh, or I'd say a bit more. Um, focused um, in doing Steinbeck research of one sort or another. So that can be anyone from, I've got someone regularly who is doing um, a uh, uh, theater piece, bringing Steinbeck to li- back to life for an hour. And I've got also people from various universities doing research on Steinbeck. So uh, right now our visiting scholar, David Robel, is from Oklahoma University, and he has a book in the works uh about the middle third of uh, the middle third of the uh, 20th century and Steinbeck's America. So that's he doesn't want us to say forthcoming because that implies it's closer to the finish than it actually is. <laughs> but I've been working with him uh, to give him all the resources I possibly can for that project. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And can you also describe Salinas in general? What I how would you characterize this town and, and especially in Steinbeck's time? Oh, geez. Well, the thing is, Salinas has had a very long history. So at the moment, Salinas has this this kind of interesting split. There's the very, very agricultural side, which uh, tends to be Hispanic, uh, migrant workers, and a lot of people like that. But that is um, the powerhouse behind the agricultural valley of the Salinas Valley, which is around 100 miles long. Uh, We're sitting at the mouth of it in Salinas. And then there's a lot of the other side, too, in terms of like ownership, administration, packing, um, distribution, and all those kinds of, you know, the, the, all the, uh, the operational side of getting what's in the field to not in the field, to getting it elsewhere, to getting it all across the country. So, I mean, Salinas, the Salinas Valley is the source of around 80% of America's lettuce. So if you think about how much, how many, how many uh, salad bars are currently in America and how much lettuce is just a part of so much uh, food, there's a huge operational side between moving that around. So, I mean, it really does require an intense amount of labor to do all of that and then also an intense amount of um of uh operations to to actually distribute it and get it out before you know it gets soggy and brown um in steinbeck's 
time, honestly, there would have been, um, there was a very similar, uh, there were similar elements. Certainly, this has always been an agricultural valley. Steinbeck's time, no different. What there would have been here, too, though, is... um, because all of the wealth of the Salinas Valley needed to move through Salinas, Salinas in 1924 was one of the richest uh, cities in America per capita because all of the value of the um, agricultural product moving up through the valley out to the Monterey Bay because that was the sh- main shipping point um, before the uh, railroad moved in. Uh, they would have been. This was also a very affluent town. So this is one of the most affluent. This was the most affluent town in America in the nineteen in the nineteen twenties. And the other thing you had here was this has always been um, the county seat. So this would have been uh, very very much the arts and cultural center because this is was the seat it is the seat of government, the seat of. Um, you know, a lot of the uh, businesses and so things were always going on through here. It was also a major traveler's waypoint, mm-hmm. north, south, and east, west. So the reason Salinas being where it is was uh, founded at the intersection of two basically cart tracks. Yeah. And it started here with the place for travelers to be, travelers to stay. It started with a, a basic hotel um, back when this was still very much a um, swamp with, as Steinbeck describes it, a mustard. A mustard uh, plants growing up over over uh, a man's head. I mean, just uh, all that swamp grass, and yeah. that, so then slowly it was more and more and more curated and managed um, into the shape we see it today. Particularly with a lot of the channels, and that would have been a lot of Chinese labor. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to throw a curveball. Hmm. Uh, this is maybe a tricky question, but could you describe what Steinbeck would have looked like when he was growing up here? Oh, geez. Steinbeck as a child. I I actually love Steinbeck as a child. um, In all of his pictures, he seems to scowl. He really, (laughs) I think from early on, he seemed to have not liked having his picture taken. So you can usually tell him in a picture of similar looking kids in that he had kind of lightish hair uh, as opposed to the, the, you know, black and white, the the darker haired kids. Uh, That little pursed lip kind of little... I don't know, grumpy <laughs> yes, scowl, yes. and then the right other there, right over your shoulder. Yeah, there's a and then of that. Yeah. and then the other thing that thank God is you know thank God his head grew in and around, but his ears, his ears just very very prominent ears as a kid. Uh, he left this area in his if he left this area mostly for good. Um, Oh, 20, you know, he was, well, no, he was, uh, left the area mostly for good in his early to mid-30s, so by that point, he would have, thank God, his hair grew in and his ears became a little bit less prominent, um, uh, mostly kind of curly, but a little bit on the tall side, a little on the broad side, and uh, everyone always describes him as having very intense blue eyes. Um, and, you know, uh, he was actually pretty tall. Uh, he got pretty tall pretty quick. So he was um, mostly con- uh, described as being very um, tall and broad and a little intimidating looking physically. So yeah. he, he certainly had a physicality to yeah. uh, a little bit larger than life type. <laughs> so, And mm-hmm. do you have a sense, did he want to escape Salinas? Or I know he was always drawn to this area throughout his life, but mm-hmm. what, what, what were his feelings about growing up here? 
he loved this place. He truly loved Salinas. And so he mentions as a child, you know, he was the kid with his nose in the dirt looking at all the flowers, the bugs, the grass. I mean, he was intensely interested in the minutiae of this place. And he loved the mountains. He loved the valleys. He loved all these places. I think it was one of those that as he grew up, there were just things that he couldn't he, he couldn't stop, you know, when you see something and you can't um, unsee it. Yeah. So uh, one of his friends describes going, uh, taking Steinbeck to a church service, and Steinbeck is making two loud, sarcastic comments about the hypocrisy of the sermon. Mm. Um, particularly, I, I believe the subject was about um, feeding uh, spiritual nourishment and the importance of spiritual nourishment, and Steinbeck is finding this to be problematic at the very least because you know there's physical nourishment and that overemphasis on the spiritual side when people are literally starving um just rubbed him the wrong way so i mean they started seeing that and certainly then when he started writing a lot of what he wrote irritated people because um in some ways they felt that he was airing their dirty laundry that he was showing them to be bad um it don't, I don't think that was his intent to show, like, oh, these people in my hometown are absolutely horrific. I don't think that was his his intent. But he writes about trying to tell the truth as he sees it. And so I kind of give him the benefit of the doubt that what he was writing was honest, at least from his own perspective, that he wasn't trying to lie or deceive anyone in writing what he did. But then when he writes... Um, you know, uh, about brothels in Monterey. Well, you're not supposed to say that everyone, that, that there's a thriving brothel business. That's that's not the kind of thing that towns want known. Everyone's got it, but that's not the kind of thing that you're supposed to say. Or um, you're not supposed to say the, you're not supposed to point out the um, exploitation of workers and the, their desperate situation. You're not supposed to show those things, so that kind of irritated people. I think Steinbeck always loved this place as a place physically, and certainly he loved a lot of people here, and there were certainly a lot of uh, friends and people he appreciated here, but the other thing, he also started just rubbing people the wrong way and feeling more and more excluded and more and more alienated. Uh, he, he, in some ways, kind of never felt, he, he didn't feel like he quite fit with a lot of the people around here. I think, uh, I don't know where this is written, but um, I heard at the Steinbeck conference this, pa this past week that yeah. um, he started feeling a little bit of alienation around the age of five or six years old. Wow. So if that's alienation from the people. So for all that there were parts that he loved, there were also parts that he just didn't sit very well with. But the one thing that he always loved was just this place. I yeah. mean, the vistas, the views, the the um, the, the physical landscape is in very much one of his loves. Mm -hmm. And so how would you characterize his views on travel then? And how did his traveling begin? Oh, geez, how did his traveling begin? And he actually had... 
I was thinking about this in the, over the past few days and trying to really consider. He had a lot of trips all over. So, I mean, from Salinas out to the coast, there's one trip. And so going out to the coast on family vacations, I mean, there was one little bit. But that's, yeah. you know, the short trip for, you know, a family of right. children. Um, but then one of his first long trips was from here to New York. Um, yeah. And this, remember, would have been a uh, sea voyage. And this would have been a very long sea voyage around, you know, most of our continent. This was a very long thing. Um, New York kind of chewed him up and spat him out the first time. He did not do very well in New York the first time, and he came back. Um, But just thinking about some of his early trips, um, a lot of his trips opened up, I think, um, a lot of stories created a lot of the views that he might have had. So, for example, um, I know in the, starting in the 40s, he started making trips to um, Russia. And a lot of these were very, these were very curated trips because of Soviet Russia. And so he was trying to get an on-the-ground view with Robert Kappa uh, in this photo, in the photo essay, A Russian Journal, to see what people were really like, because that's what he was deeply interested in. Everywhere he went, he wanted to know what are normal workaday folk like. Mm -hmm. And of course, because of the, the curated nature of this trip on the Soviet side, it was very difficult to get that. But he was trying to, to get at that kind of information to see what normal people are like. Um, and so that was one phase. And I think one of the issues that uh, he comes to later is the absolute defense of the individual mind and the individual to go about creativity. He says he really felt from very early on that a person needed people to help nurture them, and it's the ge- and this is his argument of phalanx that the individual needs people to help nurture them, and it is the artist in a group of people whose job it is to represent something greater than the whole. Phalanx is that idea of people coming together, and it creates something that's better. But for all that he needed people and desperately needed people in order to do his art, he also believed that it was the individual who was the source of creativity and art. So it was, while the artist required the help of people, the artist still, it was on them to do their individual work. And so one of he one of the issues that he didn't like with um, Russia and communism was he felt that the individual was being stifled. And mm-hmm. so he later had a very uh, strong defense of the individual mind to go where it will, as he will. But Russia was one of those idea was one of those trips that helped make that concrete. Just to interject really quick, you mentioned he wanted to get to know real ordinary people wherever mm-hmm. he went. Where did that desire come from? Uh, I think because he felt they were kind of the only interesting people. <laughs> um, he does cite uh, Boileau. Boileau, a French um, philosopher, artist, I mean, from the 1500s, Steinbeck was very well read, but he cites Boileau, and I can get you the full reference if you want, that um, disagreeing with Boileau that kings, gods, and heroes are the only people fit for uh, stories. Mm -hmm. Steinbeck said, well, the kings are uncrowned, the gods are, are, you know, are uh, um, found to be a sham, and the heroes aren't all that interesting, so maybe it is the average person, the scientist, the doctor, the 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 average person who might have to stand in for these people. He deeply disagreed the idea that oh, only a king is fit for for a story. You know, no. no, 
our kings and our heroes may disappoint us, so let's look to the other people. Let's look to the other side of the average person. And he found that wherever he went, because, I mean, that's what he was looking for. So um, he went on trips to Mexico, for example, and he loved the you know working with people and just wandering around and kind of uh he went on a trip after to mexico um oh let's see one of his main i mean one of his main trips to mexico was in 1940 and that was the collecting trip for sea of cortez mm. um and that was um looking at the tide pool communities that was working with people along the coastline he cites, you know, the best thing about a, a, you know, the only thing that would have made a fishing trip down there better was to not even bait the hook so that you wouldn't have to worry about even catching any fish to interrupt the, the relaxation of sitting and fishing, yeah. quote unquote. Um, but uh, yeah, so that that was one story. But yeah, he, he uh, some of his trips to Mexico were very... Um, Refreshing, he says. You know, going down there and just experiencing life in a in a small town was kind of letting life fill him again. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly after he was exhausted from work and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. And um, as far as ordinary people go, keeping with that theme, do you know what his technique was for approaching ordinary people and, and, and collecting stories? How did he make that happen? It's difficult to say. Um, I know, socially speaking, if he was trying to make a friend, um, there, there, Fred uh, reports, you know, read uh, impressions of him that one of his favorite tactics was to make an off-color joke and see if <laughs> someone picked up on it. That was more friendship making. But um, I do have one. Uh, a gentleman came, uh, asked me to verify whether or not he met Steinbeck because, and told me the story. Um, and it was That's one so of those. Cool. Someone yeah. came to ask you, and they told you their story. Told me the story, and was trying to figure out: Did I meet more or less? Did I meet Steinbeck, or did I just imagine this? <laughs> um, and from what he says, you know, they were just standing at the bar and just kind of struck up a conversation. And it was one of those where they were chatting about this and that, um, you know, and just you know what's going on around them. Um, this was would have been on the island of Penang um, early in the Vietnam War, where Steinbeck had gone to see what had gone, what was going on and report on it. Well, his, um, his, his sons were there. Too, yeah, his right? sons yeah. were there. And so this was um, after that phase of the trip, they were going down um, and just looking, you know, and traveling with Elaine through uh, parts of uh, Southeast Asia. And so he was on the island of Penang. And but the, So the man who, who um, asked me to verify his story was just, you know, it was just a, a very casual thing. They were just standing at the bar drinking, you know, and just chatting and talking. Um, Steinbeck was, seemed to do better in smaller groups. Uh, so you get a small group, chat, talk about, you know, whatever's going on. Certainly um, standing at the bar is conducive to chatting with people around you um and yeah and then uh so the conversation goes on and then they introduce themselves and oh hi i'm so and so oh i'm john steinbeck wait john steinbeck the writer yes john steinbeck the writer (laughs) so uh yes he asked me to to verify this and i can say at the very least you know steinbeck certainly was at that hotel on the island of penang um he, he seemed to have the gentleman who asked me about this seemed to um have a different date in mind, and so if he's wedded to the, that date, I'll have to disagree with him that Steinbeck wasn't there at that time, but if he's not sure on the date, pretty likely. 
I mean, pretty likely, but, um, you know, and certainly the conversation is what he remembers it to be. But uh, Steinbeck, uh, Elaine particularly talks about how Steinbeck would talk to small groups of people. He never didn't want to give addresses, large speeches. The only time he really did that was for the Nobel Prize, in which... Yeah. In which case you can't really refuse, but yeah. it was mostly small groups of people striking up conversations, just asking about what people are doing, um, you know, maybe cracking a joke if he could. Mm-hmm. 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 So um, I, I'm curious about how he got swept up in the Oki migration uh, and, and that traveling specifically, you know, how did he get involved with that? Carol. Carol. So Carol, uh, the Grapes of Wrath is dedicated uh, in part to Carol who willed it. Carol, um, his first wife, had a very, very, very strong sense of social awareness and political awareness and was much more politically involved than Steinbeck was. But um, that was a case of she was really the focus on it. Um, Steinbeck, prior to the book had started doing some research and was uh, writing for the San Francisco Chronicle, if I remember, a series of stories about the Okies. So it was about, I think, a seven-part article. So this is in the Chronicle and was originally published um, as a newspaper article, seven parts um, across, I don't remember how long. Um, And then later, the Lublin Society took that and turned it into a pamphlet because they were trying to sell that and raise money for the Okies. And that was uh, published as um, Harvest Gypsies Mm -hmm. or Their Blood is Strong. It had two titles because later people started to disagree with the gypsy part and Mm -hmm. felt that was a... um, a racial slur on them and Steinbeck never meant it didn't mean it that way but okay fine we're not gonna didn't argue at that at that point um and so that's where a lot of it started then uh from there he was able to start working with Tom Collins Tom Collins was a farm security administration um uh, official who was running the government camps. So the other part of the uh, dedicate, one of the other parts of the dedication in Grapes of Wrath is to Tom who lived it. Mm-hmm. That's the Tom who lived it. That's the Tom who was doing it day to day, day in, day out for the entire length of the time. So now remember, Grapes of Wrath was published 1939. The, the the dust bowl and the, the issue had already been going on for over t- for around ten years at that point. So it, it things really started ramping up in the in 1930. So you know no one was paying attention to it all that much, and then suddenly you know uh, a lot of the book came out, and there was a lot more wider attention on it. There were those people who were involved in it who obviously were well involved from day one. But uh, the much wider attention was uh, really happened after the book. But Tom Collins was, um, he got his position with the Okies through time and trust. Um, He really did the hard work of working with people day in, day out, helping them solve problems, helping them deal with whatever they were doing, um, and working with these people in the camps and listening to them. So then when Steinbeck got uh, in touch with him uh, to to start really doing his research for the book and really um, trying to understand what was going on, Tom had, you know, nearly a decade 
decade of trust and relationships established. So he really had that kind of um, that kind of a um, deep relationship with people. And so when Tom went, wanted something, and or when Tom asked a question or wanted to talk to them, they they already had someone who was already an insider in many ways. So Tom, um, I don't think it's it's overstating to say that you know he was one of those very dedicated civil servants who really worked hard to try and alleviate what he could. Um, and that kind of work um, certainly worked to Stein, uh, you know, worked well with Steinbeck, and he was able to do a lot of that research. So he went, he and Tom traveled uh, north and south through um, through a couple of the camps, at least three or four, I think. Um, uh, and this would have been mostly in the Central Valley, and just start talking to people. And but with Tom there, you know, Steinbeck wasn't so much of an outsider; he was vouched for by an insider. So that was uh, helped really kind of. Um, you know, facilitate the relationship between uh, between uh, John and the Okies, and really being able to talk about what was really happening. Uh, I should have researched this myself, but did he travel along the migration route? Or like no, no, not that I know of. No, he didn't do. No, didn't no. do that. Um, but he was talking with people and asking about what happened, and so there actually are little bits and pieces that certainly made their way into the book. So actually, so there's a point where um, Steinbeck writes about how the women at the camp are upset with the new women who don't understand how the toilets and the toilet paper work. And so they're suggesting of like, you know, um, putting... Uh, like itching powder every few every little way to to discourage using too much toilet paper or attaching a bell so that you know whenever someone pulled it they would know how you know people on the outside would know how much toilet paper was being yeah, used yeah. this is literally from one of Tom's reports I don't have the the report date off the top of my head but it is literally from one of the reports that Tom made for like uh, I think a week in May the week ending uh, you know of May, May 2nd of 19 30 whatever um, talking about how toilet paper had become such a big deal but what Steinbeck talks about is how the women who were so upset about the toilet paper were the same women who when they had gotten there six eight weeks before were confused by this yes, exactly. and so the, it was one of those that you know they're getting upset by something that they only recently yeah. really understood <laughs> the details of so I mean but literally that's one of the, the story reports yeah, so yeah I mean, it's time it took that pretty much verbatim from one other report. The report is much more um, dryly written, yeah. much more factual based. Steinbeck <laughs> added the humor and the irony to that. Yeah. Um. <laughs> um, this is a big question and maybe hard to answer, but how would you say writing, researching and writing The Grapes of Wrath changed him, considering this mass human movement? Oh jeez. Um hmm. I, I'm curious, um, you know, how how do we get to the end stage of his career where he sets off for travels with Charlie? Like, you know, did witnessing this plant the seeds for, for that idea or, you know? Well, I think one of the things that Steinbeck saw, and I'm not sure how much this comes out early in his career, but later I think Steinbeck had this realization about American regionalism. So the Okies, for example, and he writes in Grapes of Wrath, you know, Okie mean, used to mean you're from Oklahoma, now it means you're, su- you're scum, you're a son of a bitch. Yeah. 
Um, and there, he also writes about how Californians are seeing Okies as foreigners. Yeah. That they are not like us. They are not... I mean, the, there's no sense of, oh, these are Americans too. They're foreigners. Um, so Steinbeck certainly had this very intense experience with very, very, I'd say almost virulent uh, regionalism in yeah. the United States that, you know, you're from a different part of the United States, you may as well be from Mars. I mean, there's very, very strong um, rejection of other people, no matter, you know, you're not even from a different country, you're from a different state. That's, uh, it's, it's xenophobia. I mean, so he, he had this very, he had this very strong early experience with that kind of regionalism and that kind of intensity of rejection of others, even, you know, despite, you know, federal, you know, borders and that, that kind of understanding. So that's one of the, I think that is a very interesting thing that he got to, because then when you get to travels with Charlie, one of the comments that he makes is that New York is no more or less America than the Midwest than any other place. And so he writes about this inability to really define, that in some ways it's very difficult to define it, what America is and what Americans are, because you can't take one portion of, portion of it and say that's America. People in Oklahoma aren't any more a superior example of what Americans are than people in um, Minnesota or New York. Mm -hmm. So you can't really define an American in certain ways because there is a certain regionalism that affects everyone. And, um, you know, in the 30s, it was much, much, much more pronounced because, you know, a lot of people lived and died all within 20, 30 miles of home. Mm -hmm. um, whereas when Steinbeck was writing Travels with Charlie, there was a lot more interest in mobility and moving and going places. And he writes about how people um, don't, or more American Americans, which is kind of the follow-up to Travels with Charlie in many ways. He writes about how Americans um, seem to move every five years and how people are getting interested in mobile homes because you can always just take home with you and move it down the road. Um, that's, you know, an interesting way of being able to move. So regionalism was a different state in the 60s than it certainly was in the middle of the 30s. Um, and so when he gets to travels with Charlie, I think Steinbeck is seeing some of the erosion of that regionalism and how easy it is to um, know people from different places mm -hmm. and the benefit of that, I mean, and how, um, how that can actually uh, be enriching for a person to meet other kind of people, but then also the idea that um, what regionalism remains, and will, al and will always remain in my opinion, um, you can't say that one region or one way of doing things is emblematic of America. No, no one of us is a better symbol of America than anyone else. No one is a better example of America. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think, what he was really trying to get at. But despite, you know, and despite the regionalism and the regional, I'd say, not regional pride, but uh, despite the regional um, chauvinism that some people have, is that, well, 
sorry, you, you can't really say that you're an American and other and people from New York aren't. Right, right. That, that just doesn't fly. It really <laughs> doesn't work. Uh, and for anyone listening who doesn't know the book, can you say what Travels with Charlie is, what, what he was setting out to do? Well, I can tell you what I think he was setting out to do <laughs> is um, looking back, uh, we have the advantage of knowing that uh, Travels with Charlie was shortly before, uh, was a, st- was a, um, tr- uh, was a uh, trip set shortly before Steinbeck died. Yeah. Um, you know, his was done in the 19s, early 1960s, and he was um, dying by, he was dead by 1968. So in many ways, I think this was a man trying to take stock of what, what years we had he had left and to re- reconcile himself to the place that he'd lived for so long and he did see a lot of america and a lot of americans uh throughout um his entire life but i think he was trying to really get that last view of what has changed since his childhood so it was is more or less a travel log of him starting in new york going up through the uh, northeast across america along the northern border uh down California and then back across uh, east through Texas, Louisiana, and then back up the uh, uh, east coast. So just a giant circle around the United States in the uh, uh, GMC, 1960 GMC three-quarter ton truck with a camper on back, uh, known all collectively as Rosinante. you know, because he, he always had a, an affection yeah. for Don Quixote. Which, um, by the way, we have to say is just upstairs. Yes, upstairs. that is right upstairs. It's right it's right it's here, so you na- can come see it. the National Steinbeck Center. That's but a yes. plug. Everyone should come. Yes. Check it out. And so um, <laughs> this was his his um, kind of a, a last uh, taking stock in many ways, uh, trying to see what has changed, what was different. Uh, and, because and who is Charlie? Friend? And Charlie was a dog. Yeah. Charlie poodle, was right? a uh, French poodle who, as Steinbeck says, could not bite his way out of a papier de cornet, <laughs> a paper bag. Um, so Charlie, as the natural <laughs> diplomat, was uh, very useful on the trip. Yes, so. yes. Um, but yeah, um, I I personally look at Travels with Charlie actually in terms of his last three books. So uh, Winter of Our Discontent travels with Charlie and American Americans. So Winter of Our Discontent starts showing some of Steinbeck's worries, some of his anxieties about where America has gone and that feeling that there's a certain um, honor and ethic that is slowly eroding um, because of Ethan Hawley as the main character seeing this kind of uh, honor that's being eroded first in um you know, the businessmen around him, in the man he works for to some extent, uh, friends, and then finally in his own son. He sees this this sense of ethics just kind of going by the wayside. Everyone cheats and steals and lies. Why shouldn't I, as his son says? So you st- get the start of some of these um, these anxieties in Winter of Our Discontent. Then in Travels with Charlie, you get kind of the investigation. Travels with Charlie, I don't think is maybe, I think is one of those where he's writing mostly the, the trip, but American Americans is the essays that come out of really ruminating on the trip and really thinking about it and make and adding some more depth to it. So American Americans is both, it is something of a paradox in many ways. It's both... Um, 
complimentary and maybe somewhat um, insulting of Americans. He's both, uh, there's certain optimism, a certain pessimism, back and forth, back and forth about who Americans are and what they've become over his lifetime. Um, noting how technology, um, uh, the increased mobility, and all these other factors have played a role in shifting who Americans are, but noting that there are certain things that have always been the same, both good and bad. So he notes how um, every single mig uh, immigrant group to the United States, every single ethnicity, goes through their turn as being the new kid on the playground bullied by all the others yet they somehow become integrated and then repeat the cycle as the bully. Right. So, I mean, so noting how that there is that, that uh, almost hazing ritual for, for uh, immigrant groups to the United States, but then it's replicated with them now on the other side, um, and it's how this seems to happen over and over again. I mean, so it's both hopeful and pessimistic <laughs> at the same time that, you know, we have to make, we have to, um, that socially we make fun, we aren't kind to new new people. But once there's a new person, once there's a new new person to be against, they're on our side because now they're our people. Right. Um, and he goes through a lot of that. So I, I feel like a lot of his last work is kind of trying to take stock. Yeah. Um, and I think that particularly us, we can see it that way, especially knowing that he was not long for this world. It was just in his last years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess we'll go ahead and wrap up here then. Mm -hmm. um, are there any great stories from his travels that, that really stand out to you? Hmm. You've told so many great stories yeah, so far. Yeah. <laughs> I think, honestly, my favorite is one of the early ones in Travels with Charlie because it does give me hope. So he's going to Maine because he wants to see Maine um, with the fall. With the, with the fall color, I mean, and I, I'd tell anyone on earth to try and do that once in their life to see North America in fall color because it's beautiful. Um, so he wants to go up to Maine to see this, and he um, runs. Uh, he's uh, ends up parking down the way, uh, down a little ways from a bunch of French Canadians who are over the border uh, for uh, harvesting, which is very familiar. He knows he's very familiar with this pattern of uh, imported labor and people uh, moving around to do work. And this is where he, this is the kind of the, the early scene where he uses Charlie as the, um, as his uh, diplomat. You release, release Charlie, he wanders his way over, and then he, being the good owner, keeps Charlie, you know, goes to retrieve Charlie to keep from annoying his neighbors, but that gives him the pretense to start talking to people. And he talks about inviting them over to Rosanante and cramming all these people in this tiny little space. Um, please come see Rosanante to see this tiny little space. And how just sitting around talking with Brandy and just that, that kind of glow, uh, he says that's, that uh, the, that kind of camaraderie and sociability gave Rosanante a glow that it never lost throughout the trip. And I think that's one of the most beautiful stories I love. And this, you can read it for yourself in Travels with Charlie, but I feel that's one of the most beautiful stories that he's ever told, one that's just top of the list in terms of a beautiful story. Um, and I think that's also something that, that it's uh, one of these most hopeful stories in his, the later part of his writing there. And I think that's one of those stories that just um, 
to me is uh, representative of his sense of optimism that despite change, despite um, difference, despite all these things, that there are those mo- those beautiful shining moments where people can come together. And I think that's kind of one of the, the best that he's writing about when people get together and can have those kind of experiences. So, so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Sure. And last question. Hmm. Uh, what's your best travel story? Oh, my best travel story personally? <laughs> I think one of the best ones I remember. Okay, so I got a chance to go to India. Um, I've been to India twice, and one the first time I was with this tour group, um, so everyone was asleep on the train except for me, and this Indian dude, sits, you know, this guy sits down and this just starts chatting, um, you know, and we're, we're, I was learning a little bit of Hindi at the time, yeah. but not, not all that great, but, you know, trying <laughs> with the Hindi. And so we're just sitting, and he pulls out some food, and so he's, he's like, feeding me basically he's like no, no and I'm like no, no no I'm fine I'm fine and I've got you know my hand up you know you know just stop no thank you gesture and he puts a bit of food right in my palm and it's like either I take this or we're gonna sit here and stand off you know because he's not gonna back down I'm not so I close my fingers and I eat it and you know and so I'm letting him feed me and he's so proud to tell me about how his wife made all this food it was his lunch that he that she packed for him and I told my Hindi teacher about this later and he's like your guest you need to be fed so he went he he just simply did the the very simple math guest plus food equals hospitality guests have to be fed doesn't matter where they are or what the food is you have to feed your guest and so i was you know fed by a sweet little old man on an indian on the train in india Thank you so, so much, Lisa and David, for taking time to elucidate the life of this wonderful writer, for all your dedication to preserving his story, and for helping us glean deeper and deeper insight from his works. So this episode marks a very special occasion. Next month, on August 2nd and 3rd, the National Steinbeck Center is hosting a festival around the theme of Travels with Charlie, called In Search of America. It invites participants to reflect on American culture and identity. Make sure to visit. Also, if I could, I'd like to ask you to consider making a small donation to Weston's Fund. It's a foundation started by my brother Ian and his lovely wife, Christina, in honor of the son that they lost. The funds cover the medical costs of families who lose their children to miscarriage and stillbirth. Visit westonsfund.org. That's W-E-S-T-I-N-S-F-U-N-D dot O-R-G, westonsfund.org, with an I. Or you can find a link on our website, observereffectpodcast.com. You'll also find a link there for the National Steinbeck Center, where you can learn more about their upcoming festival and even follow along from afar. Thanks so much for listening.